want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound Unsight TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? The onslaught. It's here. <laughs> it started. Yeah, there, there's so there's a lot of shows right now. All the shows. All of the shows. And plus we have the wonderful problem of, of some screeners. So that adds to it, which is a good problem to have because it makes life more manageable for us. Um, and it's really going to get crazy in April. We know this, everyone who's listening. We know April's going to be worse, but 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 damn. Yeah, they just keep announcing April premiere dates. Yeah, just all all of, all of the premiere. I just can we just, can something land in May, maybe <laughs> or 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 June? June's well, good. Hannibal is officially in the summer, so That's there's true. that at least. We're not going to be talking about all the shows we watched this week because there wouldn't be time. Uh, not even a little bit, but we will be talking with Michael Price, one of the writers on The Simpsons, who uh, joined me for a, a little bit of an interview. We talked about some of the other shows he's written on, like the PJs and What About Joan and some of these other shows. So that was uh, that's coming at the end of the podcast. And then next week, uh, he's going to be on to for, for a DVD shelf segment. But uh, for this week, we just kind of talked about his his career um, as a writer in in uh, television. Um, also we talked with you guys, but there's too many shows. So this week we're going to skip the listener feedback so we can dive right in with a ridiculous number of shows. (laughs) I know I should be over that now, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not either. It works for me. I'm good with it. Um, let's see what else I do want to mention that I was a guest on eat the Rudecast this week. So if you haven't heard me talk enough about Mizumono, uh, actually I learned it's Mizumono apparently, second L- syllable emphasis. Um, I was uh, invited back to eat the Rudecast to talk about that, and I think it's over three hours. I think it's like three to of three and a half hours, um, which was delightful because, of course, that podcast uh, we record in person, um, or I they record in person, and I show up when they invite me. Um, so that's delightful. You can go to eattherudecast.com to find that. And um, and we should get, other than that, we should get in because, guys, we watched The, the 100, all of it, all of the hundred. And uh, I, I'm going to talk about all the Amazon pilots that we haven't already talked about. Like, there's there's a lot coming. So so we're just going to keep this opening segment really brief here. Any any final thoughts before we dive in, Simon? No. No? <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll be right back after this with our week in comedy. There ain't a reason you and me should be Where we can both 
This Week in Comedy, we're going to talk about The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, which, of course, started this past week. Venture Brothers is back with a special, All This Singer Gantua 2. Uh, I'm going to talk briefly about the Gallivant finale, and then we'll talk about uh, Broad City, Mokalata Chills, uh, Adventure Time, Astral Plane, Jane the Virgin, Chapter 10, uh, Two for of Parks and Rec, William Henry Harrison, but really I think we're going to talk about Leslie and Ron. Um, then we have girls, female author, and looking looking top to bottom. So let's kick things off with the nightly show, Simon. And uh, how did you feel this first week went? Uh, well, I think it's uh, I think it's off to a decent start. I wasn't necessarily uh, rolling in the aisles a whole lot, but uh, is that what people say when they think stuff is funny? Do people still say that? That's a thing. Uh, it's a thing people it's a say. Thing, it's a thing people say, and the thing no one does. Um, I, I I think that it has some kinks to work out. The the, the the whole idea of the the panel format basically Bill Maher without Bill Maher, which is that's the thing uh, I like. It's a it's a great idea. Um, it's a little bit awkward to have that shoehorned into half of a half hour because it does result in some uh unfortunate unfortunately obvious editing and conversations that sort of get cut off because it's time for commercial or there's just not time to get into that with like. For for instance, when um, I think it's in the second or third episode, when I think her name is Amy Holmes, um, when she wouldn't stand up for marriage equality uh, for uh, for equal pay, rather, um, I would have liked to have heard more about that <laughs> and maybe had a discussion about that. But there wasn't really time. Um, that being said, I, I, I think I don't think there's anyone who doesn't think Wilmore is up to the job. Yeah, he's done a very good job. He is. It's interesting to to watch these episodes in relation to uh, watch the beginning, the first few episodes of Last Week Tonight, and remembering back to when The Daily Show started and Colbert Report. I mean, Colbert Report, I think, is different because Colbert was in that character immediately from the very first moments of, of that show. But uh, you can tell that some of the jokes that they're writing for, for Wilmore, particularly in the opening like monologues that he has, um, just like happened with um, Last Week Tonight and, as I recall, happening with Daily Show as well. There's a few where it's not quite completely suited to him yet like he's doing a really good job with it but there's a couple jokes in there that sound like they were written for Jon Stewart or that kind of voice so it's like they're still figuring it out um, but he's done a really good job the, in, on the whole I've really enjoyed these episodes I, I particularly enjoyed the opening um, for the State of the Union episode just that as an American that was a delightful episode for me how, how did you think did you watch that episode what did you think of it as a Canadian uh, I did. Um, uh, I, th I thought that one was good, but I, but I honestly think I preferred the Cosby episode. <laughs> uh, just, just if only for its for its opening of. Did he do it? Yes. Let's entertain before, for before... one second yeah. that he didn't. Okay, okay. we're good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but even just just flatly condemning him before the the title card had even had even come up was was a stroke of genius. Yeah. And so when you have a show that is so topic driven, that can be problematic because certain topics they're going to nail and certain topics they won't be as comfortable with just because there's only so many topics. But I like that they're changing up the format for the show. I like that it's not just another one person, you know, direct to camera kind of show for the whole thing. And I also really, really like watching a show, a panel discussion kind of a thing where usually, at least in the episodes I've watched so far, uh, there's there's one white person on the panel. And so having Bill Burr asking Bill Burr, what do white people think about this issue? He's like, I have to speak for all white people. It's like, welcome to every panel ever. 
if you're not white. I mean, I, I really have enjoyed that element to it as well. That was great. Uh, one of the other white standouts was uh, Obama's speechwriter, mm-hmm. which I, I forget his name right now, but that guy is funny. Yeah, he was so. good. Yeah. And that was another one where I would have liked to have heard more from, from him on, on that. And that's maybe maybe a three-person panel gives them more chance to talk. But it's hard to argue with the four-person format. Like, that format was working. I don't know. We'll see We'll see what happens with the show in the coming months. I, don't, I doubt we'll talk about it again on the podcast for a while. Um, I, I, I plan to still kind of keep watching. But, um, yeah, maybe we'll check in in a few months. What do you think? Yeah, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our next show, uh, Adventure Brothers, All This and Gargantua 2. Uh, we've been really looking forward to Adventure Brothers. We loved the last season. Um, we still don't know when it's coming back again, though hopefully sometime this year. Uh, that being said, I was a little underwhelmed with, with this. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't really laughing out loud the way that I was for all of last season. Well, uh, I wonder how much of that has to do with uh, this special, which I had to watch twice because it was just so bleeding dense. Um, it's more continuity and uh, and older character heavy than I not only the entire last season but like the entire last season combined like there were probably I haven't sat down to think about how many characters were, were had an on screen appearance in this episode um, most of which uh, weren't seen all of last season but there were dozens and dozens and dozens and it was ridiculous and for me it was amazing and uh, I, I think that one thing that may have been a drag for people um uh, who are who are excited specifically for this special that we didn't get to spend a lot of FaceTime with the kids uh, because there was just so much other stuff going on. As as uh, the AV Club reviewer noted, there's a, there's a portion of, like, during the climax of the episode, there's action happening in eight different places with eight different sets of characters, which... Is oh, ridiculous. Man, is hammer in public, you insane motherfuckers. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think that for if you have been watching since the beginning, there were so many awesome payoffs in this episode, uh, particularly the, like I was not expecting to see the Sovereign slash David Bowie in this episode, which for you must have been very confusing. I was fine with it. I just went to a Twin Peaks place or Firewalk with me kind of place with it. And I was good. Yeah, fair enough. Um, But yeah, like that's a payoff from stuff that I don't think we've seen much of in at least two if two seasons, if not longer. Uh, the the accountant showing up. I was or the with the I forget what, if that's what they're called. Oh, that group. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm familiar with them. But yeah, they were yeah. they were fun. Yes, and they're the one thing that that I that I wasn't wild about was I'm not wild about the sudden appearance of lightsabers. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm hoping that was just a one off gag, but it was a little bit too explicit for me. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, as a as a reference, because usually they're a little bit more sly than that. But uh, I don't know. For me personally, I just I was geeking out left, right, and center on this. And also, can I say this was one of their most beautiful episodes? There are parts of it where I had to pause and be like, "Damn, this thing is gorgeous." Yeah, it, is, it was very pretty. The animation was was really nice, and uh, there there were enough little touches of character throughout that you you know if you could connect with them, you could appreciate them. But again, for me, I'm watching this, and it just I wasn't laughing. And when they're centering around characters that I don't have that history with, it's harder for me to be invested. And again, like you say, I'm sure if I had seen all the show, I would have been more invested. But only having seen, you know, the, the really the most recent season and a few other things here and there, it, it was less successful for me. 
Did you ever happen to see, um, the, because the Revenge Society is in a lot of this episode, and there's an, there is an episode set in New York from, I want to say, a season or two ago, where uh, one of the kids is in New York on an internship and Rusty is writing a musical? No, I have not seen that one. You you should see that one because it sort of introduces those guys and also features a musical. So <laughs> you had me at Rusty's writing a musical, you know. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. Anyway, everyone should be watching the Venture Brothers. There's like a sizzle reel for season six at the end of the epilogue, so I'm assuming that means we get it this year. Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, but speaking of musicals, I just wanted to mention the Gallivant finale briefly to say, first of all, I thought these two episodes were much better than several of the ones in the middle. H- however. I can't, I think it's just stupid. I couldn't decide between ballsy and stupid, and maybe it's both. It ended this season on a cliffhanger? Oh, that's sweet, guys. You thought you are coming back for a season two. <laughs> I mean, the notion of, of uh, Richard and Gallivant being a buddy duo for the next season is very smart. But there's no way a season two is going to happen. I don't think, at least. I, do you think there's any chance of a season two for Gallivant? No. So, you know, I look forward to, I haven't really uh, sought, sought out everyone's reactions yet, uh, but I do look forward to seeing what other people have to say and what the, you know, the fan reaction tends to be in, for these episodes. But, um, yeah, that's just, Rutger Hauer was a lot more fun than I thought he was going to be. I didn't really like him the last uh, in the last week's episodes, but here he was fun. Nice to see Anthony Stewart head for, like, half of a scene. Would have liked to see a lot more of him. Um yeah, that's about all I got. But I was—I had to mention ending on a cliffhanger for Gallivant. I guess that's chutzpah for you. Um, let's let's go to uh, Broad City, which again we're gonna be quick quick with this one. But we got to mention Mokalada Chills because the once again they captured they captured a feeling of independence and my goddamn roommate finally left. Uh, had any other thoughts for you about this episode besides Abby's spectacular music video? Uh, not really, other than white power suit. Uh, <laughs> and just the 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 fact of um of Abby getting getting that sequence, the that Edge of Glory sequence. The obvious thing to do with with that with that sequence would be I'm dancing around naked, having a great time. But oh wait, Bevers is actually still here, or Bevers shows up, or blah blah. And I love that they didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, but you're right. That's where a lot of people would have gone, and instead they just go for capturing the feeling of it, much like they did with um, Start at the Bottom last year when they yeah. were depositing their eight thousand dollar check. Um, so yeah, it, it was yeah, it was it was very it was a very nice moment this week uh, for comedy for me. Any other thoughts on Broad City, or should we move on to Adventure Time? Go go go! Astral Plane is the episode, but I don't know if it should really be in comedy this week. Feels like more of a genre entry. But yeah, God is dead, everyone. And by God, I mean Glob. Glob, yeah, they they, they killed Glob. So that's... Cute. Yeah, and like, the, the, this, this is one of the more dense episodes. And I love that they're building this comet mythology that they have been over the past several weeks. I mean, they mentioned it in Evergreen. They mentioned it earlier. Um, and so that having that tie in with... Finn's dad, and they said something about like a chosen one will arise. There was something about that last week. So I, they're 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 going heavy serialization this season in a way that I don't remember them doing in previous seasons. Um, well, I mean they go in and out. I mean, there's uh, the last season opened with several episodes that were interconnected, but uh, yeah, they tend to go long stretches of just doing whatever they want from week to week. And now it seems like I mean, there's still. Th- 
like three episodes left in the season at least. Mm -hmm. So if they're doing this for the whole time, that would be impressive, but I kind of doubt it. They're going to have to do something next week, obviously, because that would be cruel if they didn't. But damn. Which is like, there's a prophecy, and it seems like Finn is a chosen one or something, and God is dead, and (laughs) Finn's dad is back. and That just cracks me up. I'm sorry. Adventure Time, we love you. Um, However, I don't think I have more specific to say about this episode other than I look forward to seeing what comes next. Uh, Anything else for you or should we move on to Jane? Uh, I just wanted to mention the quick conversation with Glob, Grod, uh, and the other two. Uh, (laughs) Do you ever say, oh, my Glob? No, but Glob does. Uh, rest in peace, Glob. Anyway, yes. Let's do um, Jane the Virgin had chapter 10. Uh, that was actually last week, but because of when we recorded, uh, we're talking about that one this week. And, uh, man, they got the mega feels for me when Abuela was gonna be deported. I was like, oh, it was that, that like her getting pushed on the stairs. I'm not worried because I know that they're not going to kill her. Threatening Abuela with deportation. That was, uh. That was harsh, and uh, I loved the on-screen text there. That's I'm all for. We've commented on that maybe they're overusing some of these elements, but if they want to have a, a social, uh, a so- social justice, I you know, like theme to their to this, if they wanted to get political with this stuff, I'm all for it. Yeah, I like that Jane the Virgin is still pushing the limits of its formal devices, and uh, I think the. Its intertitle game was very much on point in that episode. There was definitely some uh, some over narration, but as you mentioned and other people have mentioned, it may be a, a, a byproduct of the fact that it's back from mid season hiatus, and hopefully that will ease up a little bit. But yeah, there in particular interjecting like in the middle of of conversations quite a lot. It's like no, you really don't need to be doing that narrator as much as that. We we all love you, uh, but yeah, the the immigration reform hashtag thing was great. As much as I said no hashtags in the intertitles, that's a good use of hashtags. Um, Jeez, what else happened in this episode? The most ominous closing narration so far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, for me, it seemed like, okay, they were going to kill Michael next. But then you reminded me that, Simon, what did they say in the pilot? Uh, Well, I'm paraphrasing here, but in the pilot or second episode or early on, there's a line about, uh, M- Michael's long and illustrious detective career. It may not be. They may not have said long, so I might just be imagining that, and I have to go back and listen. But but it definitely like implied that he'd be around a while. Yep. So either because you know because we were talking about this, I'm like, okay, well then that's super sad because I don't know that I buy Jane going back and forth. I don't think they're going to get rid of Raphael anytime soon. Uh, and I don't really buy them going back and forth, her going back and forth between the two guys in an extended, you know, Felicity Noel, Noel Ben kind of thing. Um, that doesn't fit with her. I, so what we've seen of Jane so far. So that's why I don't know that I, I buy Michael as a viable long-term prospect for the character outside of, you know, end of series or something or like, you know her getting back with him and then staying with him. I just don't think she's going to ping pong. Um, what do you think? Ah, well, that's tricky because there's like, a, there's a tension and I don't know how, how long we want to go on about this. There's a tension in Jane, the Virgin between, uh, between the genre and the character where, you know, Jane's doing 22 episode seasons and it's doing at least two of them and probably more than that. And a lot of plot needs to happen in those episodes and, you know, clearly already happened in those episodes. There's so much tumult 
there's so so much you know characters moving around uh being put in different and new positions and jane is such a solid straightforward human <laughs> yeah like she's kind of which is not really the sort of character you you get to see on a soap opera ever uh and most of the people around her are also so uh it's it'll be interesting to see how much they can bend those characters uh into new circumstances through crazy shit happening yeah well i mean and th- by them that piece of narration you're also precluding michael having that relationship with another character like i was just i've just been waiting for them to pair up michael and petra because i feel like that's a partnership or, or, or a coupling that would make sense on the show and could be a lot of fun like i can see that working um but if michael felt for the rest of his life until his dying breath that he and jane belonged together and she was his true love then i'm not going to be able to buy his connection with anybody else because i'll know that Really, he thinks he should be with Jane. So, and the the narrator's not allowed to lie. So they've just shut off a whole range of story <laughs> possibilities. So you think this that was actually a dumb move? I don't know that it's a dumb move. I just it is it it is a bold move because it's it shows confidence in where they are currently planning to go, and it it forces them into a corner. So now they have to find a window to get because they're painted into a corner. Um, right. So, I you know I trust these writers uh, to have a plan and to for this to to you know work. But yeah, I think they 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 must have a lot more of this further planned out, like or like the basic beats of it to feel because that's a big thing to say as far as I'm concerned. That's shutting yeah. off a lot of options. They must have a place that they know that they're going to with those characters to feel confident right. to make that choice. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, it's so much. It's TV. So much can change. That being said, if in like twenty episodes, uh, Michael falls in love with some some girl, and Latin lover narrator is like, "Yeah, I lied," uh, <laughs> it, it would be kind of hilarious. Yeah, but I just would, uh, then we couldn't trust the narrator. It would like that's destroy. True. Like uh. anyway, well, that's that's the angst of the of this episode. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I the stuff with Zoe could be fun. Um, you know, with her newfound virginity or, you know, like not, or chastity, I should say. It's a little late for virginity. It's a late yes. for virginity, but chastity, um, we'll see how long that lasts, but that's a fun little beat. And, uh, yeah, no more threatening abuela. Yeah, no, I think they, they can't really go back to that well for a while. No. Um, let's move on to Parks and Rec, which had William Henry Harrison and Leslie and Ron. And we heard from Beth who said, if, uh, Simon, if you, Continue after that episode, Leslie and Ron. If you continue to say the show hasn't been good in seasons, she's gonna be upset. Um, how did you feel about Leslie and Ron? Uh, it's it's a good episode. I I don't think I said it hasn't been good in seasons. I think that its best days are by and large behind it. I don't think people are really gonna dispute. I mean, I, people will dispute everything, but <laughs> but I think that. It's it's batting average just is not what it used to be. And uh, the Ron and Leslie type episodes are rare now. I mean, to the point where, like, it, there was a point where it was delivering episodes that good every week. Mm-hmm. And now it delivers an episode that good and everyone freaks the hell out because it's been a while. So that just proves my point. <laughs> uh, boom. But no, obviously, Ron and Leslie is a good episode. Um, the... Uh, 
when I I should mention that when uh when one of the former replacement coworkers shows up uh, in this episode, it makes you realize how much you don't miss those characters. Uh, yeah. Or at least it did for me. It's like, oh wow, Craig. we haven't been getting them. Yes, Craig yeah. shows up. Thank you. And it's like, wow, nothing against those actors, but I did not miss those those characters' input. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, whenever you do an episode that's ninety percent uh, Offerman and Polar and talking about their shared history, it's going to be good. That's kind of a no brainer. Now we got our first significant flashbacks. In the, that episode, uh, how did you feel about that uh, use of that device? Are you hoping to get more flashbacks, or do you want to just kind of keep it in the, in the present or the future? I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't really know that we need any others. Like, that was the the big thing that they were that, that they wisely stretched out for a few episodes and then resolved. I mean, I don't really know what else we would have to see. That's true. And, and having them destroy Anne's house felt like a significant enough instigating event i was surprised they did that because it's something that that uh, we talked about on the podcast back uh, when we were still watching vampire diaries or when i was still watching vampire diaries and they burned down the gilbert house on on television shows certain locations can have a permanence in a way that most of the characters don't like characters will come and go and new actors come onto the show other actors leave the show but a, a physical space where you spend a lot of a time, a lot, lot of, you know, your, the t- runtime of your episodes can actually like when that, when you commit to that space being gone, that can actually have a more powerful effect than you realize. So when they bulldozed Anne's house, it was actually like a bit of a moment for me. So I, I thought that that worked for, as being significant enough. And then the frame was a really nice way to cap that off. Uh, yeah, that was, it was all good stuff. Um, I'm going to say that though I'm in the minority on on a recurring element that a lot of people seem to be really enjoying. The future jokes are lame. Yeah, I just they're think not the good. The future jokes are lame. Okay, I'm so glad someone agrees with me because other people seem to be really into those and I just think they're weak tea, man. I'm just Thanks Larry Wilmore. I'm going to start calling everything weak tea. <laughs> uh yeah, the there's there are some fun notions in there like the Shia LaBeouf designed wedding dress. Like there's some but and especially after listening to the interview with, um, I think it was one of the creators with uh, Mo Ryan on the Talking TV podcast, and talking about how they weren't going to do a bunch of future jokes. And then I watch these episodes, and it feels like every other line is a future joke. Um, it's not. It's not funny, guys. I don't care about you know the ways in which things are different three years in the future. There's, you know, like then again, I liked Aaron Hayes coming on as the uh, with, with her beef beef milk. Uh, that yes. that was pretty great. Like, there's fun ways to do that, but like these throwaway like because they're so awkwardly shoehorned in. This is not how these people have ever spoken. But now that they're yeah. three years ahead of us, they're speaking this way, and it's really it's not working. Yeah, like the whole like uh, Kevin James doing porn. Like, okay, not funny, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's like I get it and all, but. You only get like one of those an episode, maybe. Um, yeah, there's way too many of them. I did, I do like this um, recurring element of April trying to find what her dream job actually is, and and Andy's advice to her to find like the elements that she wants in her job and then find the job was was really nice and thoughtful. I like that they don't seem to be presenting it as like we need to fix her or there's some magical job that will make her happy. Um so that's really nice and I just I could have watched the the notary stuff just go on forever because that really worked for me in a way that it probably shouldn't have. Uh yeah. Uh, although as much as 
Uh, just one last nitpick. Um, Andy coming up with that advice was a little bit out of place just because he's such... he. They've really, like, they've cranked his doltness up to 12 lately, and for him to come out with, with, with that really nuanced and helpful piece of advice out of basically nowhere was a little bit forced to me. Yeah, I bought it. I was fine with it. Um, But, I mean, I see what you're saying, but for me, I didn't have any trouble with it. And I don't feel like he's more doltish than he was before, so maybe that's part of it as well. Because uh, he also, remember, he's got a successful children's television program, so he's, you know, he's not he's not a shoe shiner, shoe shinist anymore, <laughs> Uh, I suppose that, that I didn't really like the whole device of him having a kid show, but anyway, we'll just, we'll skip that too. For another time. Let's move on though to girls, female author. Uh, this week on girls, we did get to see more, uh, of Ray and Adam and, uh, and Jessa and everybody back in New York. We also spent time with Hannah in Iowa, uh, but let's start in New York. And, uh, how did these, how did the, these moments work for you? And how, how are you feeling about the pairing of Adam and Jessa? Uh, I was much happier with the New York stuff this week than the than the Iowa stuff. Uh, personally, the notion of Adam just being like, "You're an asshole, and this is toxic and bad, and I'm gonna go now." Uh, I feel like that's been a long time coming, and because uh, Adam has always kind of been out of step with everyone else in a good way, and I'll be curious to see if they can stick to that because that was that was a pretty compelling beat to me. Uh, and also Ray, just Ray being great. Yeah. Oh, God damn it, I love Ray. Yeah, uh, how many Marnie and Ray shippers are do you think there are uh, how many uh Marnie and Ray shippers do you think there are out there because that, you know, after that scene it's kind of hard to argue. Uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel like most of the Marnie and Ray shippers are probably in the male viewership, but um, I don't know. Uh, there are there are a lot of women out there who love Ray because Ray's the best. Uh I hope so. Um, but he, yeah, he does whole... make Marnie less annoying. Yes. Um, I think that uh, Marnie is strangely sensible in this episode. Um, she's I mean, great. not, I mean, by Marnie standards, like she's not the best, but, uh, just the way that she has like a pretty frank conversation with Desi and doesn't cave just because of whatever, uh, is, is quite refreshing. Um, although I, I think single best scene in New York may have gone to Shoshana's non-job job interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. That was pretty great. Uh, yeah, the scene with Marnie and Desi was fabulous, and I, you know, it's just so wonderful to see uh, Desi try to put her off and be like, "But I love you, baby." She's like, "I don't care. You're not the only one that matters in the world, Desi." <laughs> Uh, yeah, I what I want matters too, because uh, that's not necessarily something we would have seen her say with when she was with Charlie. I think you know she wasn't as. As, like you say, she's very sensible here, and uh, she's very um, clear on what she what she thinks and what she is looking for in her life. So, I do, I you know, I thought that 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 scene really played well and maybe subverted some of our some of my expectations of how that arc was going to go, and at least when during the season. Like it seemed like that was something it was going to take her half a season to build to and to realize in her relationship with Desi. So I'm glad that we're getting that in episode three. Yeah. Uh, so all the New York stuff was good. I'm less fond of uh, Hannah and the writers group at this point. Oh, come on. Hannah's in the pre-writing phase. Uh, Haven't we all uh, been there? Uh, the pre-writing phase. Fa- no, that aspect is fine. I don't really like the straw manning of the rest of the writers group, though. Uh, and I-, I felt like that that sequence with her uh, calling out everyone could have been really great. 
uh, if they had come back at her with anything. But yeah. instead, she just kind of slinks off and... Literally. They, yeah, literally, and nothing really comes of it. Yeah, see, I disagree, because uh, I thought that that scene did work, and I was waiting for them to come back at her, but they don't, because, you know, they have self-control, uh, and I feel like that if that that could easily happen later. I'm I am I'm I'm happy to give that uh, arc, I guess, or that uh, storyline uh, some time, and be patient with it. Uh, I think by not having them come back at her, that uh, subverts our expectations, and and really that feels more accurate to what that kind of a scene would be. I don't think they would on a TV show. They absolutely would, and if she would get cut, you know, she'd have to be be forced to face her own limitations and everything. Uh, I think in reality too though, if someone accuses you of being a stereotype, you come back at them, especially if you're, you know, well spoken as presumably all these people would be. Yeah, I I think the way that they just laugh her off though works too. I don't know. I, it worked for me, I guess, is all I can say. Right. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll agree with the notion of like seeing where it goes cuz I trust the show to some degree. But yeah, I really need them to start fleshing out those people if they're if this is going to be a thing. Yeah, I yes, I can agree with that. Um, and I I continue to like the way that they are the way that they're playing with Hannah and the other characters there is sometimes being very insightful and sometimes being completely full of shit. Um, so when they're having that conversation about sexualization uh, and sexuality and in, in, in writing, and the the one the one writer everybody loves just lists off all these writers and she goes ah they're all men you only respect people writing about sex if it's a man um i love how that's a great moment that then immediately continues into hannah shoving her foot in her mouth so i'd like that they let her be so you know spot on in in one moment and then just completely full of shit the next yeah, although it's I, I sometimes have to like rewind and, and and rewatch things because my head gets so caught up in trying to figure out what the character uh, believes versus what the writers believe. Yeah, and where the line is where the line is drawn, and it's not always clear. And that's not that's my problem. You know, that's not the show's problem necessarily. Uh, but I I I'm I am concerned about them going too far down the meta hole this season. But we'll see. It's uh it's still early days. It is. Uh, let's move on to our last show of our weekend comedy, and that's looking, looking top to bottom. And uh, we got, we got, we got our next iteration of peen on the screen in fifteen. Oh yes, that's right. We did get peen on the screen uh, in fifteen in this episode. So uh, good for them. Um, uh, you know, this is going to sound superficial, but my main takeaway from this episode is we get those scenes with Augustine and Richie at the hair salon. And uh, it inspired me to take my beard down to a quarter inch. <laughs> Looking so. nice, sir. Uh, yeah, the, it's nice to have Richie back in the show and in the sphere of the show without pushing for a... And with the characters, you know, Patrick not pushing him too much. I like that they can just sort of... He can just sort of be in the world of the show and we don't need to have constant angsty, nervous Patrick over analysis of everything. Uh, yes, absolutely. That is it because uh, Raul Castillo is just such a great presence to have around on the show, and for them to have that and not be make, making drama out of it uh, is definitely the best play, and one that wouldn't even occur to most shows. Yeah, um, I, I like what we get with Lynn and Dom this week. I like the the rugby league 
is fun. And also, we this is something we mentioned in our best of 2014 or trends, you know, that kind of a thing that we didn't want to see. We should compliment them for always showing the characters using condoms uh, in sex because that's one of the things we said we want to see more shows do. So good on you looking. Um, also, nice to get more Doris. I'm liking the way that they're kicking that up a notch this year. And I'm I'm really enjoying Eddie as a new character. And it's, he, he works well. Pairing him with uh, Augustine and just having, the, you know, giving Augustine somebody else to talk to, I think, is working well. Yeah, well, Augustine was the character most in need of saving in every sense. From last season, I mean, both as a character and in his plots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pairing him up with someone new makes sense. And I completely agree about Doris. I think she's been a, a really great uh, presence to to increase. Uh, and, you know, it's 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 nice to get some, some female input on a very male-dominated show. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I will mention here is I went and watched that music video that Kevin referenced in the previous episode. <laughs> Holy crap, guys. He was not kidding. The writers were not kidding. That is the gayest music video I have ever seen. Now, did you did you watch it? Uh, I I haven't gone out of my way to watch it, but honestly, I think I remember it. Oh my god, it's just like oiled, uh, hairless chests, uh, twirling around wearing leather, uh, like biker jackets, and having like cream pies rubbed all over them. <laughs> the early nineties, man. Wow, like like the camera like zooming in on crotches over and over and over again as they gyrate. It's like, how is this a thing that happened? Like, the, how did this like how was this something that the teeny bopper girls were loving? Which it it was, uh, as well as I'm sure the gay community. But holy crap, just wow! <laughs> you guys got to check out that video. Ah, uh, Britain. Anyway, yeah. So yes, looking. Looking is still great, and you should still be watching it. And why aren't you watching it? Watch mm-hmm. it. Pretty much. And, you, and also, the thing with looking is, like, you can start any time with looking. That's one of the great things about it, because it's so casual mm-hmm. and so, uh, so laid back and so free of, of histrionics, except for, of course, Patrick being upset about things, uh, <laughs> that uh, you could really you could jump in any time. You're not necessarily going to know all the interrelationships, but it's not really going to matter. Yeah, you don't need to marathon the show. You should, because you'll really have fun. But you don't need to watch the previous season. You can just dive in. Um, well, what wins your week in comedy this week, uh, sir? Ooh, sweet Lord. Um, I will... Um, uh, oh, my God. Dude. Um, I'm going to give it to Venture Brothers. If, if only... If, if, if Public and Hammer are listening... Um, hire some more people so you can do this faster, please. Um, and then hopefully that'll work when I send that energy out there. But there was a lot of good this week. Yeah, I'm going to give it to Parks and Rec, Leslie and Ron, with uh, an honorable mention to The Nightly Show uh, this week. And uh, specifically the Cosby and the uh, State of the Union episodes of The Nightly Show. But first and foremost, I mean, when Leslie accepts the challenge to bother Ron until he'll talk to her. I mean, that's that's classic Parks right there. So I had to give the, some love to them. Um, now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre and drama.
this week in genre and drama, I'm going to preview Fortitude, which is starting up this week on Pivot. Then I'll talk briefly about some of the Amazon pilots, um, which are Mad Dogs, The New Yorker Presents, uh, Down Dog, Cocked, Point of Artist. Point of Honor, Salem Rogers, uh, Nico and the Sword of Light. And of course, last week we already talked about the Man of the High Castle. Um, then, Simon, you're going to talk a little bit about the Backstrom pilot, Dragon Slayer. And then, well, the main segment of this is going to be us talking about the hundred, all of the hundred. Uh, yes. The Justified premiere, Fate's Right Hand, and we'll wind things up with a, an eventful episode of Banshee, A Fixer of Sorts. But first, I wanted to talk briefly about Fortitude, which is starting up this week. I've seen the first five. The I believe the first two are airing together as like a two-part pilot, and I really uh, like this show. I think you all should check it out. It's tricky, because one of the things that I most appreciate about this show could connect it for some people to True Detective last year. And so there's elements of True Detective in there. There's, But it doesn't have that show's um, almost languid conversationalism. We don't have like this... The, the almost like a mood of of existentialism and the, the, the philosophical ramblings. There's nothing like that. But um, there are other elements, I'll get into it, that, that remind me of True Detective. There are elements that remind me very much of Fargo, but it's, it's a much more ensemble piece than either of those two shows uh, feel or felt. Um, so, yes, this has Stanley Tucci, which is how a lot of people are, are aware of it, but he doesn't show up for almost the entire double pilot. Um, and he, when he does show, I like, I didn't really care when he, his character showed up. I was like, I don't even need that character to be here because I'm interested in this entire town. The, the what makes Fortitude a particularly interesting take on the whole murder in a small town. No one could have done it. Everyone here is wonderful kind of a thing. Uh, is that, you know, by setting this, this show in the Arctic Circle, there's no crime in the Arctic Circle, apparently. And I kind of trust the writers on this. It seems like it makes sense. Because in order to live there, you have to have, if you don't have a, a solid enough house, you're going to die. Because it's the Arctic Circle. Um, so everybody who lives in that town, ha they're only there because they have a job. Because if you don't have enough money to have a job, you can't afford a house and you die. So like, there's no crime because there's everybody has a job and nobody's poor and nobody's like, you know, trying to... There's no, no impetus for a crime. So it's just like a really peaceful, happy community. And, uh, and so when there is... A crime when there when some, you know secrets do start to come out a little bit, uh, it it really works because it is outside of the norm and it feels like they 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 earn that beat like all these small town crime kind of things always feel at a certain point it's like yes that feels authentic for a small town except that we've seen this show so many times we've seen that storyline from Twin Peaks on so many times that. You know, like this is. I need a new twist on it to make it believable and make it not feel like a retread. And so having that element to no, no one can even live here unless they have a job because there's no like there aren't houses there. Like this, it it really adds an extra level of believability to that element. But what reminds me of uh, what reminds me of Fargo is the the following of um, some of the police officers. Um, and the, the ensemble cast, what reminds me of True Detective, though, is that five episodes in, I keep waiting for it to become a sci-fi show 
or a horror show, it could in an instant just take a left turn and the main character, one of the main characters is a werewolf or has been infected by like this alien virus from outer space. Like the way that it's shot keeps uh, it, it really is aware of and plays with genre storytelling elements uh, just like keeping the camera behind someone as they walk through a dimly lit corridor because there's a noise. you know. And, and even if the show never embraces that the way that True Detective kind of, it seemed like they were really teasing with the man, King in Yellow stuff and then nothing became of it. Here, it it feels like uh, it, it could easily just be this is what it feels like if you live in this area. It feels like you're camping in the tundra and there's a noise outside your tent it could be it's probably just a guy it's probably just somebody who's coming to 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 like look for you because they wanted to talk to you about something but it feels like it could easily just be a ghost or be a monster or be who knows what because it's such a desolate area I and mean, you can see how the mind adds these elements of the supernatural even if the show never really fully goes there. So I really like that approach. And it's something I've not seen other people talk about. And I feel like maybe even just me saying this much has kind of ruined it for people. I hope not. Um, so yeah, I don't want people to get overexcited because it is very much a, who killed this person? There are secrets in the town. But the cinematography is... <laughs> but this, the cinematography is gorgeous. The ensemble cast is really good, uh, really consistent. When Stanley Tucci does show up, he's playing a fun character. There's a few lines about how he's British. It's like, but you're American. He's like, yep. And that's it. No stupid accents. Just he's an American guy who's British who's in this area to investigate the the death of a uh, of a British citizen. Um, an international cast. It just is. People should check it out. I don't, I'm not saying it'll be the best thing of the entire year or anything like that, but it's definitely worth checking out, and uh, I look forward to being able to talk about it with you, Simon. All right. Okay. Um, next up are the Amazon pilots. Most of these, frankly, I didn't think were good at all, uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. The New Yorker Presents could be interesting. This is a half-hour show that has a series of different elements, so like there's a short film, there's a poetry reading, there's a documentary kind of mini uh segment that follows um uh, one subject um there so there's these different elements um within the episode that i think for some people this will feel like a sketch show where different elements are hit and miss for them i enjoyed the the whole first episode and um i think that the subjects they chose for it were interesting and um i think they do a good job of capturing the idea of the magazine that's what they're going for whether or not that can be successful week to week remains to be seen but here it worked i like the opening the the, the sketch with alan cumming and brett gelman i mean you have Brett Gelman as a prophet of the Lord, uh, wearing a bikini swimsuit and aluminum foil on his head because that's what Alan Cumming, who is God, tells him to do. I mean, like, it, that, that's a fun premise, and I think they do a good job with it. Um, yeah, we'll see. I, I would be surprised if it didn't get picked up, but who knows? Um, then we have Down Dog, which I just don't think is very good. Mad Dogs, a remake of a British show. Have you seen the British show? <laughs> Uh, no, I have not. Yeah, I haven't either. I didn't realize it was a remake until after I started looking into other people's reviews on it. Uh, also, that, that's four friends get summoned to their former friends, like palatial estate in Belize or something. Um, and then stuff happens. I don't know. I didn't think that was particularly good. Uh, cocked a comedy, I guess, in the world of guns, except that uh, after last year's 
gun violence. I don't know how you think that that's a good idea to make a comedy about about guns and uh, how great they are to have around your your house and everything. Um, and as definitions of masculinity, and I, I, that didn't think that was good either. Um, we have Salem Rogers, which has Leslie Bibb as a former mo- supermodel with um, Rachel Dratch. It's really nice to see Rachel Dratch get a, a prominent role, so I kind of hope that takes off just for that. Um, Nico and the Sword of Light is a kid's animated show that I thought was really cute and worked very well, like the animation style and the story of like this little kid who's got to slay the darkness with his magical Sword of Light. Down Dog is about a yoga instructor, and he, it's that, that one was not particularly uh, interesting to me either though not nearly as uh, puzzling as, as cocked. But Point of Honor, I feel like we should talk about that a little bit. Uh, Simon, <laughs> will you tell the listeners, what is Point of Honor about? Uh, so Point of Honor is, as I understand it, a, a set a drama set during the Civil War about a uh, family living in, where are they exactly? Uh, South Carolina? I want to say they're South Carolina. The South, uh, who is fighting for, they, they're, they're backing the, con- the Confederacy, but uh, they are against slavery. Yeah, and uh, so this is how you... Maybe it's Virginia, but this is how you do a drama set in the Civil War where you have the protagonist fight for the Confederacy. Um, you just make them be against slavery, but happy to fight to maintain slavery in the state, or the right for someone to choose to to have slaves. Uh, but they hate slavery, so it's okay to like them. Yeah, this is terrible idea just to start with but then you add it's just so normally when you have these period pieces that allows for spectacle allows for sweep yeah it allows for um you know what like what was life like then all of this stuff but from the time we see the three daughters or sisters who live you know are the southern bells living in the home who are happy to tote their shotguns of course because they're tough southern women uh in like shiny a shade, like they looked like they were straight off the Chesame from Deadwood. Uh, uh, Southern Belle outfits with no shoulders, plunging necklines, lace, fingerless gloves, and everything is like. All right, do you do you realize what you're doing here? Like you're you're clearly going for. And I saw some of the reviews refer to like there's plenty of eye candy at the the plantation like oh you so you mean a bunch of scantily, scantily clad women who have very little if any characterization and it's okay for you to just say oh they're eye candy they're not you know people um but the <laughs> men you would it's you don't call the men all the men dressed up resplendent in their uniforms people uh eye candy because they are people they are characters so it matters if they're characterized whereas the women what, with their with their heaving bosoms and uh, their their one proponent for slavery, another one is the sensible one, who uh, is for slavery because otherwise their family will be ruined. And we can't sell Terra, sorry, we can't sell Point of Honor, which is the um, the plantation. And the other one is the the good girl who's married to the guy in the north. I mean, just like the characterization is terrible. The set design and the costuming is completely not period at all. Um, it looks like somebody's playing dress up. I mean, if you're going for heightened realism or heightened, you know, elements to this, then, then, you know, then there are things you can do there, but to try to make a show where you root for the Confederacy because they are, they're for Virginia, but against slavery. I mean, no, just no. So, out of out of curiosity, because uh, I couldn't 
lower my self-respect enough to watch this. Um, how much were you begging uh, by the midway point for this to have instead been a show where the protagonist just thinks slavery is great? That would have been more interesting, more challenging. Uh, I mean, the, like the lines of of dialogue that they give the characters to say. I mean, well, and then also I should mention the accents are all over the place. So there's that too. <laughs> yeah. There's like, I don't even know what they're doing half the time with the accents. And then there's certain characters that just aren't doing an accent. They're just like Northern, they're Northerners. They, they speak like a Northerner, but they're in the South. And there's the ones who are uh, Aussies who are trying to do Southern accents, which, yeah. Anyways, uh, so <laughs> it's just, that would have been more interesting to watch, you know, to show this is what the society was. And then, you know, you could have done the whole, they come to realize that slavery is wrong thing, or you have a central conflict between some of the characters over slavery, but instead they just all know that slavery is bad. And all the white people go and save all the black people, except for the one who's already been sold drama. I mean, this is a, this is an episode that literally has the white people goes set free all their slaves. Um, and then, then it has like, what was the song that? What's the musical cue there? Amazing Grace. I like it's like Amazing Grace, like a slow, mournful, like Amazing Grace inspiration. Uh, like, and the, and the black people are like, what do we even do now? It doesn't matter because the white people free. They're like, the 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 gender and racial politics of this are problematic at best. Um, and it's just it's just the whole thing. It's just I don't know who thought this was a good idea. Yeah, I. I can't, when people say problematic, um, people use that word in a lot of different contexts. And I think the the correct one is if you're calling something problematic, that means it has problems but is still worth engaging with. Oh, it's this true. This doesn't sound like that. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it's just if you're going to go heightened, if you're going to go kind of stagey, go for it. Be Django, you know, there like there's there's ways you can do that and have it be interesting. Um, but this isn't that. I wanted it to be done about five to ten minutes in to this first episode. I was like, ah, crap, how much more is there of this to watch? It's like, not like this part of American history hasn't been documented. There's a bajillion Civil War miniseries, movies, like, go watch Gettysburg, go watch Gone with the Wind, go watch... Like, there's so many different ways that this story can be told and already has been told. And so this is completely unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of unnecessary, can I just say, as a general rule, can we just retire Amazing Grace from the soundtracking lexicon? Yeah. I mean, I, that's a beautiful song, and I love Amazing Grace, but no, it's so overused that no, it just you, you can't you can't use it in a show anymore and have it have any weight or or value really in a nope. scene. No, nope, can't be done. Amazing Grace and Ave Maria. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's move on, though, because uh, that was my rant on uh, a point of honor. But, oh, God, a naming of point of honor. See, because <laughs> the point of honor for Virginia is what they're... So they're fighting a losing battle that they don't agree with because of their honor and their pride is... Oh, God. <laughs> let's move on to Backstrom. I've already given my thoughts on the pilot in our midseason preview, but you watched it this, this week. So what did you well, think? Well, that's... That's not quite true. I watched half of it, and then I was like, uh, in the words of Derek Ladu, my day opened up, and I did something else. Uh, I don't remember what it was. Anything else would have been better. This show is terrible. Uh, you were not wrong. If if 
If it was a show that people were getting excited about and actually watching, it would be a a, a spotlight shaming candidate. Um, I really like Rain Wilson. I want good things for him in life. And I like that he is making an effort to branch out. So good for him. This was not emphasis, not the way to do it. Um, the, the whole conception of the show is misguided. There's twice as many characters as there should be. Um, and none of them are interesting. And the, the more get introduced, the less interesting they all become, uh, seemingly paradoxically. Uh, I felt terrible for the female lead because pairing her up with this character fruitlessly having these dumb arguments is just, just seems like hell. I mean, I'm sure it's a good paycheck, but still, it doesn't reflect well on anyone. See, because uh, he's, but... he's brilliant, but he's gruff. And he, oh, he flies off the handle. God. And so he needs a sensible female partner to keep him in check and, and, and go, oh. but why would you even think that? But Backstrom, but Backstrom, I mean, it's... Come on, guys. It's tiresome. It's very, very tiresome. We've seen it a million times in the last five years. It's We have House to thank for this again, so uh, House has a lot to answer for as much as we did enjoy it. Um, there's nothing novel about it. And, and it's such a waste of some really great uh, people in, in, in this. Like, like Dennis, Dennis Haysbert. Yes. What the hell? Hive mind. <laughs> like, let's get Dennis Haysbert. A good show again. It's been so long. I've really liked him on on now and again, and then he then twenty four broke through, and then it's since like since that he's nobody's cast him on anything that's stuck, and because uh, there's well, no way he, this is sticking. He, he got some good stuff to do in Dear White People, the movie, but yeah, on TV it's been it's been slim pickings, and I really I'm I dread. Did people watch the pilot? Did it, did it get good numbers? Do I you know. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not even going to look it up because that's going to show up on my search history. My eyes glaze like when that word comes up in my Twitter feed. Right, exactly. Um, I hope no one watched it. Uh, I want everyone involved to go on to do uh, other better things. But yeah, just the, the casual uh, racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, etc. is not edgy and cool and fun and uh, doesn't require uh, a constant mouthpiece on my tv it's like this is uh like but you can see what i'm saying was saying about like this being a funnier die parody of this kind of show oh yeah like it, it it's it's hard to believe uh that someone thought poochie the series was a good idea uh and uh, yeah it, it's it's easy to imagine like a 15 minute version of this that's actually hilarious because it's sending up uh, all these shows, and, and it actually made me think immediately of um, of the of the recurring sketch we're getting this season on Kroll's show, uh, uh, Dead Woman Town or whatever it is, <laughs> yeah, um, which which is great. Uh, but it, like it really it it really showcases that if you're gonna do a weekly mystery show, um, you really need to bring something novel to the table. You need to not just be recycling these old hackneyed uh, ridiculous tropes and. And I, I think that the moment that I knew that I was going to have to turn this off and do something else was when um, they kept bringing up Backstrom's dad mm -hmm. and being like, oh, he was abusive. And that's why I get to be an asshole. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, I'm just getting angry. Everyone involved needs to move on, do something yeah. else. Well, this the, did not work. The last thing that, it, that I have to say about Backstrom is that, it, with that what this pilot what I learned from this pilot is that even more than your uh, ensemble, even more than your writing, 
even more than your costuming set design, set design cinematography and probably tied with casting. If you're doing this kind of show, the most important thing that you need is the tone. You need to capture that tone because this doesn't work in Backstrom. And I constantly kept expecting it to become a comedy because it was so close to just being a straight up parody of everything. Like, are they, they, they're not serious, right? Because this is ridiculous. Well, it's, and, and like, what's going, and it's speaking of tone, like, what is going on with the scoring? Yep. Oh my God. Like, it's blunk, 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 blunk. Oh, there's some guy hanging there and it's really graphic. And it's, yeah. it's like, it's like, and then like, like trying to be mournful at other times just like th this show has no idea what it is and like sometimes that is acceptable in a pilot but when when everything is so charmless and just uh, abrasively unpleasant uh that's not going to work nope let's though let's move on to a show that uh did work at least enough to get us to watch it all uh and that's the hundred so when we last spoke about this, I think I had seen a few, um, and now we've both seen all of the hundred. Yeah, basically behind the scenes, you'd watched a few, and I was like, "Oh wait, give me this week to catch up," which I did. We both did. So now <laughs> we got did. from I started with episode four because I'm lazy, uh -huh. uh, but I did get all the way up to episode two oh nine. Was this week? Wasn't it? Yeah, two nine uh, or two ten, whatever this week. This episode is "Remember Me." Yes, uh, the the episode after the the big one, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, my hot take on the hundred, it's okay. I, I, I want to like it more than I do. And, uh, there are parts and actually overall, weirdly, I'm kind of preferring season one to season two, uh, which I was not expecting. And you're making a face at me. Yeah, you're um, wrong. That's okay. Uh, I think my biggest issue with season two is, and seriously, if you don't watch the show, I'm about to spoil the shit out of it. So you're not, there's certain things I'm not uh, letting you spoil. Okay, fine, fine. You can talk around that, it, yeah. The big thing that happened last week needed to happen way, way sooner. Like, three or four episodes sooner. There, There is... Th what happens to that character, it seemed obvious to me that that had to happen before what earned that for them mm -hmm. even happened. Uh, just because of the way they were writing that character. I did not like... Uh, the way that they tried to sell us on that, either in the performance or the writing. Uh, and it was a huge, it's been a, it's actually been a huge thorn in the, in the side of this season for me. Okay. And uh, now the, the difference I have here that really made that progression work for me this season is the constant um, reevaluation as a, as you're watching of, are they, is this the kind of show that this is? Is this the show that lets, one of its main characters become the person who makes that decision in the village. Are they going to commit to that? Or is the person that they're looking for going to show up at the last second and then they're not going to have made that decision so they can walk them back or are they going to commit to it? And then they do. And then is this the kind of show that is going to let that get swept under the rug because they want to have their, their uh, swoon worthy romantic leads and love triangles and everything. Is this, it's playing with our expectations of a show on the CW as far as I'm concerned, because we have, there are plenty of CW genre shows that let their protagonists do terrible things. And then uh, five or six episodes later where we've forgiven them because we like the show and it, it does funny. Th the person becomes funny. So it's okay. Yeah, I don't think it's enough, though. Like, I, I don't think that the, uh, as much as, you know, it went off the rails, 
I don't think that this show, uh, for the most part, really touches the sh- the savagery of like let's say the first two seasons of the Vampire Diaries. Um, it's like we already know what shows from the CW are capable are, are capable of thanks to that. Uh, and I feel as though um, the the first season does a better job of uh, of making of upping the stakes constantly mm-hmm. and just making it seem like uh, how could I of just like upping the peril level to ridiculous levels to the point where like over the course of the first season they probably killed nearly half of the remaining human race. <laughs> like it was ridiculous. I mean, th- that being said, the whole plot device of Oh, if we get to we we can get down to Earth, but we might die. Kind of stopped being effective when mm-hmm. people kept getting down to Earth and being fine. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. And, and my my other beef with this season, and this is gonna sound like a, a nitpick, but it does bother me, is that some aspects of the world building are really neat, and other aspects are really half-assed. Like including? the the like including the geography. Ah, uh, <laughs> like, okay. And I know they, they, they're kind of doing some of that on purpose to be misleading, but I just have no concept of how far stuff is from from other things. Uh, people seem to just keep running into each other in the same bit of woods a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea where that desert is. That's or, true. And where it is in relation to the stuff that looks absolutely nothing like desert. Because um, at first, when uh, when we get that desert setting, you're thinking, oh, this is cool. Somebody finally landed on Earth. And didn't end up in that same twenty-kilometer patch, mm-hmm. um, and actually ended, ended up somewhere completely different. And we're going to get a different. No, we're not. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And they're close to this the sea, whatever that means. If that means ocean, or if that means a large lake, we don't know. Right. Um, so anyway, there's there's a lot that I find like unsatisfying about the world building at this point, and that I hope that they can work on. Uh, and I'm I'm nitpicking a lot because I do like the show, but I want to get this out of the way. Um, I think also like we're 20 some odd episodes in and I think there is a little bit of a deficit in terms of genuinely interesting characters. Um, you know, there's like, I kind of care about Jasper cause I like Devin Bostick and I sort of have to care about, um, Clark cause she's like 80% of the show. But beyond that, like, I feel like the show thinks that a lot of people aren't expendable that really, really are. Yeah, pretty much everybody on the show is ex- expendable, I would say, except for Clark. Um, and uh, I was disappointed. I was very disappointed when a certain character was uh, killed off because I really like that act- actor, actress. And-, and then the character that they are replaced with, sort of, in the narrative role, uh, is way less compelling a performer for me. Um, yes. Keeping this very nonspecific <laughs> for those who are watching, hopefully know what we're talking about. Uh, those who haven't watched it yet will hopefully catch up because I think it's a lot. I like it a lot more than you do. Um, the yeah, I think there's a lot of very expendable characters. They build up the Octavia Lincoln thing really quickly right away in the show, and it never really feels earned. I don't care about Lincoln as a person. I like Octavia. I you know, and I you know what I also really like is that this is a show where. All of the leaders are women of like every well, yeah, group is... and they, it's never commented upon. And I love that. No, this is very, I mean, except for, you know, s- sometimes there's some jockeying with Jaha and, and Henry and Cusick's character. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, women lead and it's sort of treated as the default situation, uh, except for on the mountain. Yeah. Uh, Raymond but J. That's, Barry. 
uh, yeah, always nice to see Raymond Chainberry. But you know, another another problem I have with the show, and it really uh, it was cemented for me in the last couple episodes. The show overuses torture and physical trauma. Not, and I'm not saying that in a because torture is bad and we should feel bad about it kind of way. I mean in a uh, every single character, and I literally don't think there is a single exception, has been physically through the ringer uh, at least once, if not half a dozen times at this point. And it starts to lose its impact after a while. Uh, like, literally, like, by the time a principal character uh, in the last episode we just saw is getting, like, pieces cut out of them. And you're just like, but you know that they're not actually in danger. Like, they're not going to do anything permanent to that character at this point. Um, it really starts to to muzzle the impact of violence. Uh, mm-hmm. And this this might be, it might be a side effect of uh, of binge watching. But I really need them to ease up on on the physical trauma because it's not it's it's getting to the point where it's it's be, like the amount of damage these people take like rocks to the head especially like I I just want one scene where someone tries to knock someone out with a big rock and it cracks their skull open instead by accident. Yeah, well, and that's the kind of decision you would have seen more in season one than in season two. In season two, there is less of that. But I do think they do a really good job, especially in the second season, of balancing the different arcs. And, when, you know, and also, I just got to mention, this is a show on the CW, because we have different expectations for CW shows, let's be honest, that has a very pretty cast and has them look like shit for the first, like, six, six seven episodes of the second season. They're like caked in blood they got like crap all over them they're covered in mud they look horrible i love that they do that but um in in season two you've got octavia one place you've got the the mount weather you've got clark and anya you've got the you've got jaha you've got uh marcus and you know everything that's going on and like i think they do a really good job of managing those different storylines until they bring them back together i think that works really well um uh, i like the the world they create in the mountain i think that's distinct enough um the way that that is progressing uh makes sense to me and i think is i like the way that the tie that in with the reapers um reapers reavers every time i have trouble with that (laughs) um yeah there's there's a little too much magical fixing and i doubt that they're going to going to change that like i have no fear for jasper i should be afraid for jasper and i'm not because i don't think the show is going to kill him um there's this is a show where no character should be safe should feel safe um like you say but there are too many of them that do. Bellamy is not going to get hurt. Octavia is not going to get hurt. Clark's not going to get hurt. Like there, there's a lot of characters that are in no danger uh, because of how the show presents them and how the show has centered itself in the second season. That you know that that they feel like they're off limits, and that is death to a show like this. So hopefully that is something that oh, as the season continues, they will get away from. Yeah, I think my my overarching like. I do like the show. I think it does a lot. It gets a lot of things right, and uh, it, in particular, it's really good at, at especially and, and another reason I like season one. It, it's really good at forcing you into these impossible positions with these characters and thinking, well, if, given the information that I had, I probably would have done the same thing, or at least could justify doing that thing. Uh, I've sort of lost a sense of that this season, mm-hmm. uh, but um, I guess my, my overarching disappointment is more because I kept hearing about how real the show gets. 
And it does get real. Like, don't it get gets me wrong. Real. It gets real. It totally it gets, gets real. real. But it doesn't get real enough often enough. For you. Uh, for my liking. For, for my liking. For uh, me, it really does work. And it's very effective. I, I think the, the central relationships are do really work. I like uh, where they're going with Clark. Uh, it makes sense to me what, what what it looks like they're doing next with her. And um, the the I think they can do more with age and with contrasting the adults and the 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 people the kids on the ground uh and what's going to come next when they when those two groups are reintegrated once you know they've resolved the mount weather situation um what does their society look like who do they turn to because all the adults it's like yeah you're adults but we've been down here for months we know what's going on so we make more sense to be in command than you do can i just say uh last thing because you can correct me on this if i'm wrong but we're nine episodes into a season of a show on the CW. And there's been no banging. I know. It's awesome. I keep waiting for them to hook up Clark's mom and Marcus, and they still haven't, and I'm so glad. Uh, no, it's they, It's wonderful. It's so great. Yeah, everyone's thinking about not dying. Nobody's banging. Nobody gives a crap about banging. Uh, the, the characters most likely to bang, uh, the one it was, uh, I can't say that, the one uh, had to deal with severe trauma, and so it didn't. <laughs> that, that didn't come up. But yeah, that that is a delightful side effect. The, the love triangle stuff that's really annoying early on um, goes away pretty quickly. Uh, we haven't even mentioned Raven. She's fabulous. So great to see... Um, uh, a character like that on on the show, and you know, by the time you get to the point of where we are now, there's a really um, surprisingly diverse representation. I guess I would say there's a lot of pretty white kids, but on the scale of things, I think they do a good job of showing different points of view. Um, I would say it would be nice if we could get some not straight people because everybody is seems to be straight right now. Um, and there's like I say, there's a lot of white people, so maybe less white people but uh, on the whole hey, <laughs> hey there's some white people there 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 are Asians who aren't there just to be funny that's nice yes you know uh yeah anyway i don't want to make it sound like i don't like the show but i was a little bit disappointed in certain aspects and i think it can do a lot better S simon is this because the rest of us like it so much so that's forcing you to be more negative like we talked about last week <laughs> Uh, no, I think expectations do, um, they, they, they can't not play a role, but I, I guess I just feel like, uh, based on certain aspects of the show, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a version of this show that's so good and this one's just good. Okay. So like the stars version of the show where they take more uh, risks. They, they, I don't think it necessarily needs to, like, we've seen CW shows take risks. I don't think we need to export that to a show where they can have, uh, boobs and swearing, uh, for it for it to to be a good to be a better show, I just think that it needs to uh, take the risk that like use the risk the risky points as a jumping off point and then really go nuts with it. Mm -hmm. That's what I want personally. Okay, well, are you in for the rest of the season? I'm gonna have to be now, aren't I? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's move on to our next show, which is the Justified premiere, Fate's Right Hand. Uh, we were down on last season, just like pretty much everybody else was. Um, how is this season premiere? Is it a return to form, or are you, again, a little nervous? Uh, I'm definitely going to be a little bit nervous for a little while. We've seen the first three. Uh, I think that it's off to a more solid start than last season was, for sure. There's just less stuff happening, which is always good. There's only really maybe two or three planes of action this season, which is really smart because last season there was just too much of everything and it just felt watered down and there were 
dozens and dozens of problems. Here, there's only a couple, uh, and that's good. The, uh, I mean, the important thing about this episode is, uh, the, the death of Dewey Crow, which is the, uh, which is, of course, the, where the episode ends. And there were some aspects of the, uh, <clears throat> execution, uh, that I wasn't <laughs> super fond of, that the overt of Mice and Manning was a little bit much. But I think, uh, Dewey's death is more important for what it signifies than for the thing itself, uh, which is that, you know, we're not gonna F around this season. Just there's not time to 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 deal with the Deweys of this show anymore. Uh, it's been fun and we've had some good times, but it's time to get real. And I appreciated that. Yeah, uh, they they really do because there are so many re- callbacks to the to the pilot and to the, what the series has been. They I do think they do a good job of manipulating the audience into almost expecting that, of course, Dewey's going to be around for this season. This is a back-to-the-beginning kind of season, so when he's referencing the church and and all of that, I think while it may seem clear what's... Normally, it would be really clear what's going to happen, but because this is because we have the external knowledge of this is the last season and this is the last season premiere, um, at least I was not expecting them to kill Dewey. Uh, so, so I thought that that moment did work well. Uh, how about Ava? Uh, how, how are you liking what we get with her? Uh, it's a little one note this week, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much being informant is hard. Being Ava is hard. Uh, I'm a drink a lot. Um, which is, you know, those are fine notes for Ava to have. It'd be, it would be nice if uh, she gets a little bit more to do later uh, in this episode. It's a little bit rote. Um, I know that uh, people will find a little bit of familiarity with his character, but I really do like the introduction of Garrett Dillahunt as Walker. Uh, it's just such a freaking blast to watch Oliphant and Gillahunt kicking it and just and and getting to have a repartee. Uh it's just such a joy to watch. As much as, you know, he's not necessarily the most exciting uh, baddie or henchman we've ever got. Yeah, the Yeah, I'm one of those who is waiting to see about the Dillahunt character. Right now again, like you say, it's a little familiar for me, but I do enjoy that actor quite a bit, so I'm hoping that there is more to come. I'm way more excited about some of the other returning uh figures and uh I really like what we get with Win Duffy and uh with uh Catherine this week. I, I that Catherine character I think is really great. And and Mary Steenburgen brings a different uh a different uh, feel to those kinds of scenes than we've gotten in the past. So I think that really yeah. works. And um, yeah, I just, I, I like what we get with art. I like what I like Rachel in charge that is working for me so far. Um, so I'm glad to be back in this world. And I just hope that the Ava stuff goes a different way than it. Fe- Cause it feels very familiar right now. It feels like oh, we've seen many shows do this. So I'm hoping that goes somewhere we don't expect, or at least they find a way to make it feel fresh. And um yeah, same thing with a couple of the other elements, but certainly um, it's it's a solid open to the season. Yeah, the the one thing I'm really hoping for that I know we're not going to get is to somehow fold Winona back in because when we get her in the opening shot, yeah, it, it's like it's very much like whoa, I was not expecting that. But then I'm just assuming we're not going to see her again until the finale, which I'd prefer we got her a little bit more. But I guess that's probably not going to happen. The following, I I don't even know if the character's still alive on the following, but I'm choosing to blame them. Yes, yes, let's do that. Or that other thing that she's doing. Yeah. Uh, we should also mention, of course, The Americans is coming back this week. Uh, we've seen how many? Uh, <laughs> we've seen, is it 
three episodes? Three or f- four? I've seen four. Three. You've seen four? Yeah. Um, The Americans is fucking amazing, you guys. It's so good. We're it's so glad still you're... amazing. But it comes back very differently than, you know, the season begins very differently than the previous season did. It doesn't have the instigating element of the season two premiere. Um, and yet it picks up very naturally from where it left, so- left off. I like the progression of the reactions to the season two kind of emotional cliffhanger. Uh, they They feel natural. And I like the way that, the reasoning of the various characters in their response gets unfolded over the first four episodes so far, at least. Um, what else do we have to say about these episodes? In vague terms, uh, there's a few things I need to highlight. One, the direction of this show is unbelievable. Uh, especially, you would think that they've run out of suspenseful ways to shoot characters driving within the speed limit. Uh, nope, but they, they have really, not. really haven't. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. There's a there's just a couple of shots where my jaw was on the floor with the way that they're mapping out the geography of these non-chase chase scenes. Just mm-hmm. oh, oh, be still my heart. I recently discovered uh via commentary track that uh Steven Spielberg reads every American script uh-huh. and uh occasionally chimes in on uh, on editing choices and now that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, but anyway, uh, lots of smart character choices. Um, I love how Sir- Paige feels is still really a really interesting and dynamic character. They're doing a good job with her, but she's also just that teenage obnoxious, you know, where yes. she's so well like manipulative and but not outwardly. So it's just like ah, she's just uh, a teenager, but it works. Yeah, th- there's so much to talk about. But the w- one thing I'll highlight just as a level, just so people know what level the show is operating on. The whole idea that um, Paige is this point of conflict. There's all this stuff happening with Paige and Elizabeth that we don't really get to see. Um, but there's this line between how much is Elizabeth parenting and how much is she prepping. Yeah. And and it's completely ambiguous and maddening in the best possible way. And you just feel for, for Philip so much because he, in a way he's kind of powerless. Uh, to do anything about it except just have the same argument over and over and the way pe- with the way they keep having that argument also it, it should be tiresome but it makes perfect sense because it's an irresolvable issue and and the only thing philip can do if he's worried that elizabeth and he are not on the same page with on the same page with page uh is to try to be an influence in her life and be around and you know try to shape help shape her as he would see fit but somebody's got to do the spying. So when it's his turn to be do out on a mission, he can't stop Elizabeth from hanging out with her and vice versa. Yeah. So like the, 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 sub, the parallels to like a, a struggling couple using their kids to kind of get back at each other or um, worried which parent the kid likes better. You know, like there's so much great stuff there that also has this extra layer on top. Yeah. Or the notion of, I mean, I I would say the real theme is like, how much can you prepare your kids for life and how much of it, how much can you just sort of, uh, just how much do you sit back and be like, well, this stuff's going to happen anyway. Uh, let's see how they do. Um, you know, how much can you control the outcome? Which is, I I think that would say like, if I had to choose one theme for the season, that's really what it is. Uh, so much other good stuff. Frank Um, Langella. I really love Frank Langella is here. Uh, I'm trying to remember if they've ever referred to his character before he showed up on screen. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I don't. I want to say no, but they could have easily in passing. 
it's yeah i'm sort of hoping that they did because the way he shows up and they're like hey hey this guy is is admittedly a little bit much oh it worked uh, it worked I, for me he was their handler before claudia yeah no and that, like that that makes sense it would just anyway yeah it's the fact that it's big guest star makes it a little bit more distracting but uh but i do love frank langella so i don't really care um i i love costa ronan on this show i just need to spotlight him a little bit because he's so great um uh he's oleg for anyone who doesn't know and uh yeah i still care about the residentura uh interesting new character slash characters there potentially um i'm interested in the way they're gonna handle the uh annette mahendru thing mm-hmm um, that's all I can say about that for now. Nina is still on the show to some extent. Yes. Um, and the way that they're playing that is intriguing because I will, I will say that, that they take the, uh, the, what seem like the obvious outs for that and they slowly eliminate them. <laughs> so I don't really know yeah. uh, where that's going, but it's a really smart way to handle it for now. Um, and okay. Actual last thing I'll say, there is a sequence involving a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my god yeah oh my god at the suitcase yep this sounds about right well we will leave it there and we'll be back next week to talk about the season premiere of the americans uh but we thought we should preview that for you a little bit now let's go to our last show of the week uh we had to end on banshee i mean come on after that episode a fixer of sorts and uh so did you like having met nola because <laughs> she's gone yeah. Here's the thing about this episode of Banshee. Uh, sometimes when you're watching a show uh, that you're on, kind of on the fence about, sometimes it's the exceptional episodes that make you realize it's not really your thing. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Probably it doesn't. Uh, I feel yeah. like this has happened before, and it happened for me this week because obviously the way that fight sequence is choreographed and shot is amazing. Um. And there's uh, quite a lot of really stunning action beats in this episode. But I don't really think I like Banshee. <laughs> <to> be <honest. laughs> uh, this is a really technically impressive and fun episode that I didn't really like. Um, the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed with how much of the show boils down to a macho power fantasy. Uh, yeah. And uh, on levels that I don't think it even means to. Uh, but like when you're watching Lucas Hood just absolutely dominate, uh, that really this really obese guy, or you're watching, uh, this you know the sadistic henchman that we're supposed to care about for some reason tear out that lady's throat, or like a million other instances in this episode, it's like, uh, like, uh, I don't know, guys, I don't know. Yeah, I have trouble with uh Burton, right? That's the character's name. Yeah. I have trouble with him. And when, in that fight, I was like, "Oh, good. They're finally going to kill Burton because uh he's been a a strong like, you know, f- intimidating presence since the show started. We've never really gotten to know anything about him. And we get we don't really know much about him now. Uh but but he's just sort of been an assume, assumed level of protection and badassery he, he he makes proctor out of touch because you can't get past burton no one can get past burton so it's like oh they're gonna they're gonna have a knockdown drag out with nola who's also a badass and that's a fabulous way to to do that and so then even if they both die then that element is removed and proctor is more vulnerable what does he do then 
except that the show doesn't do that. Uh, the the little glimpses we got in the fight, I thought worked really well to to make us to at least to make me care more about who was gonna, whoever was going to win or die or whatever. The fight scene was badass. It was really well done, um, very memorable. But when she's monologuing, it's hard for me to. You know, it's like, of course you got killed. You monologued. You monologued <laughs> to Burton. You're an idiot. Yep. Uh, and, and it's sort of a shame to see the character go. Uh, but I also like that this is a show that will make that decision. Um, as for the rest of the episode, uh, the this is the first time we saw any of those characters. First time with Dennis O'Hare. First time with uh, the guy in the truck. I kept thinking of Brick. Last time with the guy in the truck. Last time with the guy in the truck. Um so that stuff pretty much worked. I, I liked the use of in the, the the glimpses inside Hood's mind where we see the girlfriend and then having that come uh, c- come back into play in the last moments. I think it was, imp- was important for us to see how important she is to him, which was not we didn't know that, I don't think, before this episode. So I thought that all worked really well. And, um, you know, I, I think that the much of the season is progressing in interesting ways. But it, it is hard to argue with the notion of it being a, a male power fantasy. Um, and I absolutely see where you're coming from. I'm able to still enjoy it on just a sort of a visceral level. But um, but you're not wrong. Yeah, no, 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 and I and I don't want to slight the levels on which like it's awesome to have a show that is uh, operating on this level uh, in terms of its action choreography and just its sheer savagery. Um, but oh, <laughs> I can't believe that I've been talking about Macho Power Fantasy and I skipped over the part where we have a gunfight around a giant neon dick because <laughs> uh, that also happened. Um, and you know the whole strippers. Admittedly, the stripper sequence was at least funny. Yeah. Um. Uh. But yeah, the um. Although they're you know TV strippers, so anyway. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, so much of this also would be mitigated if I cared about Hood, but uh, especially at, at at this point in the show, it's become clear that it's every bad guy's destiny to to be beaten to death by Lucas Hood. Like that's just <laughs> that's. That's just like no matter how much nuance they do, how much character they ultimately it's going to come down to a man on man fight with Luke, with Lucas Hood where you lose uh, because <laughs> Lucas Hood beats you to death. Uh, that's just your destiny on this show. Like, am, am I wrong? <laughs> like, uh, that's well, I do care about Lucas Hood as a character, um, and maybe that's because I've you know seen all of it, so that doesn't hurt. Uh, but I do care about Lucas Hood as a character, um, or the person who still doesn't have a name in season three, and I kind of love that that he doesn't, we don't know his actual name. Um, but uh, I don't know how they're going to get out of that with his girlfriend. I don't know possible way that that scene ends where he doesn't, where she accepts him not saying what his name is. Um, but anyways, uh, the, the, yeah, when he's in peril, I care. And I think that comes down to the performance and also the, the way that the show has been constructed over the past three years. Um, so, do I care more about him than I do the protagonist on some other shows? No. But uh, on this show, he's the center, and it, that does really work for me. So maybe that's the, the single biggest difference between our appreciation of the show. Yeah, I guess. If I got the sense that he wasn't an invulnerable killing machine, uh, maybe that would be different. But I don't. Yeah. And I, and like like you said, I haven't seen season two, uh, but I did see season one. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't get the impression that they're massively different. Um, yeah. Well, I, and they do... We talked about this with the hundred. They do beat the crap out of them, and 
it does take him a while to heal on the show. So that's something that I think helps. So when he's had the crap beat out of him, he looks like crap and he's moving slower and everything for several episodes. Usually um, we'll see if that holds true this time, but yeah. I, I, I will say um, I did appreciate uh, and it was pointed out elsewhere. So I have to mention this. I appreciated the uh, how disgusting uh, and real the uh the, the the death of this week's villain was uh it it seemed yeah. like practical effects and yeah. yeah that was that was the right way to do it i also like some of the comedy uh the was it doris or something or wendy or the drink was nice and the little scene we got with the ids with uh um uh, frankie Faison and june uh lee's uh their scene at the uh, the building uh also was a nice little bit of comedy so i like the comedy we got here Yep, um, and it's always nice to see Dennis O'Hare, even if he's just still just doing his Dennis O'Hare thing. He has a role this season on a different show that I'm intrigued by and also repulsed by, but I guess we're going to find out about that later. That's all I can say about that. Okay, well, uh, what wins your week in genre and drama, sir? Um, shit, are we including the Americans? Because that's the obvious one. <laughs> it's up to you. Uh, well, then, yes. The Americans, all of the Americans. Okay, uh, I'll give it to things that uh, that actually aired on TV last week. So that means not Fortitude, not Amazon, not the rest of the hundred. Um, so between Banshee, the Justified premiere, Backstrom, and this episode of the hundred, I'll, I'll give it to the I'll give it to the um, I'll give it to Banshee over the Justified premiere. I think I may just be because I watched it more recently. That hurts. But there, there's a visceral enjoyment for me with Banshee because I think it's just because I'm so leery about Justified. I don't want to get burned. I'm sure I won't be. It had one off season. Before yeah. that, it had four great ones. I just, again, like I talked about in the mid-season preview, I don't care about what this show seems to care about for its final season. I am not invested. I don't care if, if Boyd gets taken down. And I don't care if Raylan's the one who does it. And... I'm worried about Ava, but I don't think the show is going to actually kill her. So uh, that's the trouble yeah. I'm having. With, with Justified, Justified is ironically gun shy about killing characters. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can see that, but ho I'm, I'm hoping we'll come around. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And if I had watched them both this week, I might have a different opinion on it. But having more recently seen Banshee, that's the one that's staying in, in my mind right now. Um, uh, a few show notes. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonside.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV and give me a hard time for going with Banshee over Justified. I'm sure you're right. Uh, you can also email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can find us up in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. You can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Soundonside TV. And you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at the television Simon. You are uh, at Sucker Howell. And what is our question of the week? Since we did the hard work of catching up with the hundred, um, I'm wondering if there are any shows people out there have just caught up with, or something they intend to catch up with and just don't or haven't yet, so that maybe we can pester you into doing so if we think it's worth it. Yeah, that sounds like a good pick. Uh, yeah, the next one for me, like I keep saying, is my Mad Fat Diary. Um, it's it's waiting for me to watch it. That's the next one um, that I need to to work through. But uh, yeah, how about you, Simon? What's your next one? I'm thinking about Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce um, potentially because I I did I did hear that it's it's been up to some good stuff. 
Uh, that's the that's the only one I can think of right now. There's so much. There's so much mm-hmm. that's coming soon that I'm sort of I, I I'm dreading taking on any more new projects for the next little while. Yeah, certainly until like June uh, for me, <laughs> but we'll see how we'll see how the next few months go. But uh, for now, we'll take a break and I'll come back with Michael Price, one of the writers on The Simpsons, to talk about his career in television writing. So we'll be right back after this. Willie, I hope I'm not being too personal, but you seem resigned to a life of abject squalor. My family's used to it. Me grandfather used to get sent down into the mines to make sure it was safe for the canaries. Don't you ever hope for anything better? Something better? For Willie? All I want is a place somewhere. And? That's it. Maybe you could aim a little higher. Well, let's see. Oh, to have me shock rebuilt. Get my rotten teeth all drilled. Something on underneath me kilts. Oh, wouldn't it be adequate? Matching shoes for both me feet. Dining on untainted meat. A toilet, what still has its seat? How wouldn't it be adequate? We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, and this week, uh, instead of the DVD shelf, I'm excited to uh, introduce Michael Price, one of the writers of The Simpsons, the creator of a new show on Netflix, F is for Family, and uh, of course, he's got a long career as well. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kate. I'm really happy to be here with you. I was so excited to talk to you um, on Twitter briefly and uh, and discover, first of all, um, that you had written some fabulous episodes of the simpsons that i really enjoy because for me the simpsons often can fall into just a realm of the show i'm i'm bad about following individual uh writers with it just because it's been so cohesive a show for so long so i was <laughs> it was fun for me i mean especially as a musician to go and see oh you, sure. you did so many wonderful uh of, of the musical episodes as well but and yes. then to to dig into your your uh career before because i you know i'm one of those few people who was watching what about joan when it was on who was watching some of these other series and um so it's great to get to, <laughs> to speak with you oh god see because what about joan for example is a show it's set in chicago and it has joan cusack so i remember even you know i was younger but seeing that come on and being like yay a show set in chicago i feel like there are none of them now there are more but you know at the time right. well not only were we set in Chicago, but we made it in Chicago. Well, so then was this a traditional um, sitcom, like live studio audience, all of that? Yes. Uh, I mean, the backstory of it was that I believe that the network, ABC or other networks, were interested in having Joan uh, star on a show for quite some time. And um, she you know, had a pretty busy film career. But at the same time, she was starting her family. She had young children. And she lives uh, up on the north side of Chicago, sort of near near Evanston. And uh, so she, I think she took this opportunity to star in her own TV show, but also because it was a chance to be home, you know, and not have to be out on some, uh, some film set somewhere for three months at a time. So it all worked out that way. And so she partnered up with uh, my, still my boss now at The Simpsons, James L. Brooks and Gracie Films to, to make the show. And I believe you know, the condition for her to do the show was that we make it in Chicago. So it was a traditional multi-camera sitcom 
we filmed it at this uh, studio out in um, near Cicero uh, that was called Chicago Center or Stage Studios or something like that. Uh, it was an old, uh, it's a studio that's still used for filming, but it was at the previously had been like a refrigerator factory. And it was a big old soundstage that they then built like a sitcom set up on it with bleachers and everything like that. And all of us were, all of us writers and producers were here based in LA, but we basically, basically moved to Chicago for like off and on for a year and a half to work on the show. Uh, and you know, I was, I love Chicago. I grew up in New Jersey, idolizing Chicago, idolizing everything to do with second city improv. Uh, and so was just fascinated with Chicago, had been there one or two times and I had this whole, uh, fantasy in my mind of like, we'd all be sort of hanging out like Bob Newhart at the beginning of the Bob Newhart show, like riding the L and whatever. And, you know, <laughs> and so we spent, we spent, I'd say, you know, 90% of our time out in Cicero <laughs> at this place, but, uh, it was a great experience. It was super fun and it was a great, it was a fun, it was a fun show to work on. And that I, uh, that when that ended, I moved immediately to the Simpsons after that. It just sort of worked out that a job came up when I'm the Simpsons. Well, that was one of my questions uh, for you is how different is the process uh, being in the writer's room for a show like What About Joan and the Simpsons and then, you know, with the PJs, that which seems like it's stop motion. I don't know if that was CG stop motion or actual. No, that was full on actual hands on a puppet stop motion. That is amazing. Made it to uh, Will, Will Vinton Studios up in Portland. Yeah, we never got to see the, the, the making of it because it was up in Portland at Will Vinton, which is now it's now called uh, Leica, I think, and they're the people that made like the box trolls and things like that, mm-hmm. but that's the same studio, I believe. But um, So we never got to see it, but apparently because it was, we were doing a bunch of episodes, there were like all these stages all around with all the sets on it, like cop many, many copies of the sets, many, many copies of all the characters, and the characters were each about a foot tall, and there were hundreds of people just spending all day doing, you know, eight seconds of (laughs) animation. So, yeah, no, that was amazing. But in terms of the writing process, I'd say it's not that much different from any sitcom I've ever worked on. I've worked on a bunch where the only difference is the, the limitation of what we have in terms of characters, in terms of sets and things like that. But the way the room is run is almost identical everywhere. I'd say in any sitcom writer's room I've ever been in, it's still, it's still sort of a, a, the showrunner or if the showrunner isn't there, it's the person who's running the room is called the room runner is sort of running the show and sort of going through the script and saying, okay, we need a better joke here and everyone pitching jokes. But other than that, it's, it's pretty much the same anywhere you go, I'd say. Yeah, I imagine um, on well on The Simpsons when you have uh, animated, so you aren't don't have the restrictions of we have this number of stop animation characters we've made. You can probably there's more right, flights of fancy, right. you know. Um, yes, well, on, especially on PJs because yeah, it was so labor intensive. It was so incredible. We'd see this. We'd see the shows come back in bits and pieces. Uh, you know, on The Simpsons, we'll we'll write a show and then we'll sort of see an early version of it, which is called the animatic which will come back about three or four months after the show is written and recorded. And then, you know, then we'd get an animatic on the PJs, which was all drawn like storyboards basically. And then they start the animation and on Simpsons about four months after that, we'll see the full animated show. But on PJs, the scenes would sort of come in in dribs and drabs and we eventually see it all together. But there was very little we could do once it was animated because we had to meet a deadline. So if we had to change a line or do something, we literally have to figure out a way to have 
the line, the new line be the exact same lip movements of the old one. So we are really doing kind of all kinds of uh, verbal gymnastics, you know, <laughs> trying to fit a new line or cut it in, in an interesting way. So that was definitely a limitation. And on the PJs, it was a limitation in terms of like where they could go and, and sets and things like that. Because it was, they were actual physical sets. There was not very little in the way of CG yeah. at all on that show. So yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, and it's just kind of amazing for me to think of a network green lighting a show that labor intensive just being willing to spend the money on it but i, I think it's really uh, a really entertaining and interesting show and i can't really think of another show quite like it yeah me neither i mean i think it was a really great time to do that show uh i mean i'm sure it would not have been made had it not been for eddie murphy being the star and you know the co-creator of it um and his amazing talent um and, uh, of course, it was co-created by uh, Steve Tompkins and Larry Wilmore, who's now the star of The Nightly Show. Uh, and they were amazing guys, super smart. I mean, for Fox to sort of take a risk on that show was very expensive to produce. It was through Disney Touchstone, I believe, and Imagine, and Eddie Murphy, and Fox. Uh, and not only to be that, but also to be the subject matter of inner city project life, um, with touching on a lot of the really interesting tough issues and finding a funny way to sort of deal with the fact that, you know, the depressing state of these, uh, you know, 1960s era housing projects and the crime and, and, uh, you know, and just the whole black experience in, in, in urban America was an amazing thing. It was an amazing thing that they did it. So I'm really proud of that show. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I particularly enjoyed watching um, the episodes that you're specifically credited with it, credited with for the PJs um, is that they're just full of, of film and TV references and, uh, you know, just sound like Indiana Jones <laughs> gags and like, and, all, and then of course I look at uh, some of my favorite of, of your Simpsons episodes and we have My Fair Lady and we have all these other really fun uh, references. Is that something that you particularly enjoy or is that just part of the comic sensibility of these two shows? No, I mean, I think they're part of the sensibilities of the shows. I mean, I worked on the PJs a year, a couple of years before Simpsons, so I felt like I had no clue that I'd ever be on the Simpsons, but I felt like, wow, this is the closest I'll ever get to being on the Simpsons, <laughs> you know, because it was with Steve, Steve Tompkins had worked on the Simpsons in the, you know, in seasons, uh, I think, five, six, and seven, you know, the Oakley and Weinstein uh, seasons, which are incredibly great. Uh, so he brought a Simpsons sensibility already to the show, and Al Jean and Mike Reese, you know, who uh, ran The Simpsons and Al, who runs The Simpsons now, were consultants on there. So it felt like we were, for me, it felt like, wow, this is like I'm on a version, I'm on a more or less a black version of The Simpsons. Uh, so I think a lot of the same sort of love of pop culture, love of old movies, love of references like that were part of the, the show's DNA, but definitely in mine. Uh, I grew up um, basically just sitting in front of a television all the time, <laughs> just <laughs> just soaking it all up and loving it just watching it, watching, watching, watching. I lived in, like I said, I grew up in the New Jersey area where uh, this is pre-cable era where we just had our three network channels and we had three independent stations that basically just played old reruns of old shows and old movies all the time. So I just watched everything at W.C. Fields and Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello, all the old horrible movies, good movies, old sitcom reruns of everything. You're just sort of soaking it up and just loving it, loving comedy especially, Loving great comedians and really funny actors and um, never knowing that I would really be put to any practical 
full use, but uh, just loving it. And um, so then I, uh, just later on, I went to the college in New Jersey, Montclair State College in New Jersey with a theater major. So I was an actor and loved musical theater. So that's where all those musical theater things in The Simpsons come from, just my love of all those old shows. But uh, yeah, so I, I just love it's fun to make those kind of references and fun to call back to things that you love yeah, to put them in a show. Absolutely. Uh, well, one of the, one of the shows that you've worked on that I was so sad that I was not able to find cause <laughs> it's not out on DVD and it's not out on streaming. Uh, there's, there's teen angel, but more than that is homeboys in outer yes. space because I've heard yes, so much uh... about this series and I've never been able to watch it. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience <laughs> yes. on those shows? Absolutely. Well, uh, this was my first sitcom job. Uh, I had broken into the business uh, a few years before doing a, a really fun Saturday Night Live style sketch comedy show called The News, N-E-W-Z, uh, and had done some animation. But I was really trying to break into the world of sitcom, and I had written a bunch of spec scripts, which is what you do. And I wrote one for News Radio, which was new at the time. And someone at Disney read my news radio and thought it was really good and liked it and brought me in to have this meeting. And, and so this was at this golden time sort of for sitcom comedy writing where every, every network was just going crazy and introducing new shows. And so there were these two new networks, the WB, which is now, well, they, they kind of combined to be the CW. So it was the WB and UPN. And so UPN was putting on a show produced by Disney called Homeboys in Outer Space. So my agent said, you have a meeting at the show called Homeboys in Outer Space. <laughs> And I was like, it's a job, uh, uh, whatever, it sounds great. You know, so I went in and met, met the show's creator, this wonderful man named Eric Van Lowe, who's great, who had worked on The Cosby Show. I think he'd worked on A Different World. He'd created a bunch of shows. He co-created the show with these two other guys who had come up with the basic uh, concept. And uh, basically it was a, I guess you kind of call it a parody. It was sort of Futurama before Futurama in a way of these two fellas named Ty and Mo, uh, who were trying to be Han Solo. Uh, they weren't very good at it, but they were kind of fun and fun loving. And they operated out of this bar. That was sort of our version of the star Wars cantina, uh, run by a guy named Vashti, who was played by the great actor, Kevin Michael Richardson, who voices uh, Cleveland junior on the Cleveland show. And among other, many other things, he's been on the Simpsons a bunch of times. And, um, they would go on these insane adventures where they each each episode was a different planet where they had to go to. It was kind of like a Star Trek, having fun with Star Trek. Well, uh, just James really Doohan. silly, goofy. James Doohan, right? We got James Doohan on the show. Um, well, I'll tell you in a second how we got into the show, but but anyway, so they 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 usually when you go to have a meeting on a new show like this that's just been picked up, uh, especially back in the day before there was. Uh, internet and where like the pilots were put on the web you'd sit in the room and they go okay well watch the pilot and then we'll come and have our meeting with you right so you know anyway when you go to have one of these meetings where the guy who's going to hire you is in the next room so you really want to laugh and you know, act like you're really enjoying it you know so i've been in a number of these meetings where, where you're like ha, 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 and you're really kind of like uh, you know but you want to sound like you're enthusiastic about it but that show really tickled me it was really silly it was Crazy stupid. I mean, the, the ship they had was called the Space Hoopty, which was basically uh, a Starship version of my father's old car, which was a, a 1964 Chevy Impala with, like, uh, X-Wing kind of wings on it from Star Star Wars. 
And it was very silly. It was very goofy. I, I it really tickled me. And uh, so I met with Eric, and uh, he liked me enough to hire me on the show. And the staff was sort of half black, half white. Uh, it was a great staff. Besides me, it was uh, two guys named Matt Weitzman and Mark Barker, who went on to create American Family. Um, uh, two great guys named Jim Bernstein and Michael Shipley, who went on to work on a bunch of shows, Family Guy, among other things. Uh, Lori Kimbrough, Stan Foster, Chuck Cummings. It was just a great staff. And uh, among the consultants were Mike Reese and uh, Al Jean and a, a great guy named Chris, Chris Cluse, who worked on uh, SCTV and is still writing great stuff today. Anyway, it was super fun. And like, so James Doohan played our version of Scotty, but we couldn't call him Scotty, so we called him Pippin. <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> like, Scotty oh, that's Pippin. awesome. But uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, was in, he was basically Scotty. He was, he was old then. He was, not, he was only a few years away from passing away. He was very sweet. Uh, and we just had him say basically Star Trek jokes where he made jokes about Kirk and Spock without mention, mentioning them by name. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, the one with the pointy ears. It was all it was all our chance to sort of geek out and make red shirt jokes, which I think at the time maybe were somewhat fresh <laughs> <laughs> about being the, red, being the guy in the red shirt. Uh, and then the crazy thing happened, which was that UPN was a um, member of Paramount, was owned by Paramount, which owned Star Trek. And Disney owned this show, but the people behind Star Trek, Paramount Studio said you must cease and desist to use to use James Doohan, who is clearly referencing his Star Trek character. And um, the person who ran the UPN network at the time was named, like, named a lady named Lucy Selhaney. And she basically said, like, screw them, do it anyway. But Disney, <laughs> but apparently Disney, which is very litigious on their end in terms of protecting their characters, they decided to say no. So then he was on, he only did like three episodes of the show and then he was off. But, um, it was super fun. It was a super fun show, and it lasted one season. If it, if it ever comes out there, yeah, I mean, it, it's still to this day, almost 20 years later, used by some publications like Entertainment Weekly and maybe The Onion as sort of like the go-to punchline of, like, awful show, you know, so if you want to say, well, it's no homeboys in outer space. But I will say this. It, it, I thought it was very fun and, and just silly and harmless and, and a lot of fun to work on, and you know, it, uh, I'm glad you're interested in it because uh, it was, I wouldn't say it was great, but I think it was funny and it was had a sweetness to it that we really enjoyed. And it was my first job, so I had a really great time working on it. And that's where I got to meet Al, Gene, and Mike Reese, who then went on to create Teen Angel the very next year. So they hired me on Teen Angel, and that was a really interesting and great show to work well, on as well. I mean, with the title like Homeboys in Outer Space, it's an easy title to make into a punchline, but people of my generation, if you didn't watch that when it was on TV, I don't have a way to see it. And I, there's plenty of terrible TV and terrible movies that I have seen. Uh, and, and so I would love, I, I don't, even if it's terrible, which I don't know, obviously I have no way of knowing. It sounds like it'd be really fun. Uh, I would like to be able to see it. So somebody yeah. out there, I'm just throwing it into the ether. Let's, let's get, you know, DVD, you know, one season wonder DVD going Absolutely. on because I know that I am not the only one who wants to see that show. All I know of it that exists, I believe, right now that you can see is like the credit sequences on YouTube. Um, but uh, I think that's about it. But yeah, uh, you know, 
I mean, I think there's too much. It's interesting because this is a time now where, where TV is covered so, so, um, extensively, you know, with like sites like yours and AB Club and everything, Vulture. And there's so much, there's so much written about it, so much said about it that in a way, I think sometimes it's taken in a way very seriously when it doesn't need to be. So I think there's definitely a room. There's room for a show like that. There's room for shows that are just silly and just have to get a, have a, have a joke or two, you know, and don't have to be, you know, analyzed or taken apart. But, uh, and I just, from my own experience, sometimes it's hard to wed or divorce yourself from what the show is actually the final product of it and the experience of doing it. The experience of doing it was an incredibly joyful and, and super fun. And we had a wonderful, wonderful time. So that's, it's always a, a very sweet memory for me working well, on that show. Uh, thank you so much for, for talking with me about these series. I know we didn't really talk too much about the Simpsons cause we try to focus on shows that are not still going, which we've discussed this on the podcast before. It means we're never going to be able sure. to do the Simpsons cause that, that show is never ending as far as I can see. Uh, but I did just want to mention, uh, again, for our listeners who don't, uh, who don't know, you obviously you have a Writers Guild Award and an Annie Award, and you were one of the writers on the fabulous uh, Oscar-nominated non- Longest Daycare short. So thank you for your excellent work on The Simpsons yeah. as well. And uh, if... If the series ever does end, I look forward to when I'm able to cover it on the podcast. Okay. If we're all, if we're both still alive, then absolutely. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Well, for now, uh, we're going to take a break and uh, come back uh, hopefully next week to talk about a couple of your shows on the DVD shelf. So for now, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. (laughs) 